on the very idea a philosophy podcast hello everyone yeah it's uh, been a long time since i released a podcast probably about 6 weeks um i like to keep it on a you know, once every two weeks cycle, but uh, it's the winter. It's the winter, man. It um, it gets to me. So, and hockey season started, and I get all distracted. And uh, but you know, I'm uh, trying to go strong now. So the kids have graduated. Uh, my students from junior high school, and uh, I found myself with a little bit extra time. So I'd like to get back into this. And, uh, by the way, thanks for sticking around on this, if you were kind of wondering and confused about where the episodes were. Anyway, I'm going to play the original intro that I recorded a few months ago for this, and, uh, yeah, let's listen to that. I just wanted to leave this message at the beginning. Thank you for listening. And, uh, intermittent dabblers help even intermittent fasters. Well, let's hope you're hungry. Hungry for knowledge. It's a nasty rainy day here. After all, this is what you uh, tune in for. Some information about the weather on a particular day on which I never provide the actual date and a location that you don't know. It's rainy season here. Everything is wet and I dare say dank. Dank in its original Oxfordian or Oxfordian, Oxfordian meaning of being disagreeably wet. Now, let's go to this game where... Uh, I send a philosophy question your way and you try to answer it. In this case today, I'm foregoing the quotes for a bit of uh, trivia. I'm switching things up here for you. Who, here's the question, who is the Nicomachean of Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics fame? You know, the, uh, the book on, uh, on uh, morality, on virtue theory that uh, Aristotle wrote way back when. That same question worded slightly different. Who was the Nicomachean ethics named after? Okay, let's count down with me. Five, four, three, two, one. The Nicomachean of the Nicomachean ethics is none other than uh, Aristotle's son. That's nice. Some people get a tattoo of their kids' names on their arm, but uh, Aristotle shows who truly gets the coffee mug title of world's number one dad by naming a foundation of Western ethical thought after his son. Mm, very sweet. That same son, Nicomachean, would live a virtuous life, so much so that he would be posthumously made a saint by the Catholic Church in their pagans of esteem category and go on to be perhaps better known as Saint Nick and Saint serving as inspiration for the modern-day Santa Claus. Okay, let's get on to the main of the episode. Today, I want to talk about a philosophical tool. Well, what is a philosophical tool, huh? Well, it's a concept that doesn't give you an answer so much as give you an apparatus 
for arriving at substantive answers. It's a way of doing things. Maybe method is a better word to use than concept. Anyway, uh, that tool we will be talking about is reflective equilibrium. I think this is just uh, maybe going to be a one-episode one because the ideas are fairly straightforward here. But, you know, once they get talking about some things, you never know. Reflective equilibrium is based on the idea that we can come to answer in politics or morality or aesthetics by bringing our intuitions or quick ideas about something into balance with our principles. That's roughly the definition of reflective equilibrium. It's a multi-stage process. First, we look at an issue. Now, let's uh, say capital punishment. We look at our intuitions about the topic. You know, what are our intuitions about uh, capital punishment? We, we might, you know, we might call this our hot takes. Our hot takes, unfortunately, in this day and age of Facebook and tar- uh, Target Twitter. For example, one uh, intuition might uh, be something like monstrous deeds deserve monstrous punishments. Uh, you know, a Hammurabi law and order type feeling. That might be an intuition in favor of capital punishment. Or another intuition might be that we should sympathize, not condemn the murderer. Uh, well, you know, his or her situation we should sympathize with and uh, not her, his or her deeds. Because people, they're raised in such an environment that they can't help but be monsters. And that would be an intuition against capital punishment. So we got to, you know, blend those, mix those up, kind of balance those. Uh, intuitions and hot takes uh, both for and against a given topic. Then we bring in principles and values that we have that might touch upon the issue of capital punishment. Uh, these principles and values are sometimes direct, but perhaps best to conceive of them as more general than the particular case of capital punishment. Uh, for example, uh, an argument against, a principle against capital punishment is that we live in a liberal democratic society. This might lead us to believe that our principles dictate that we treat all people humanely and that we should have inalienable rights against uh, cruel and unusual punishments. Or in contrast, in, in favor of capital punishment, we might believe that uh, we might have a principle that a society such as ours, based on the rule of law, must occasionally uphold a conception of justice and security with state-sanctioned violence to assert the dominance of the rule of law so that no one is tempted to a life of crime. Now, things like that, those principles, those intuitions, those hot takes, uh, I don't want to get caught up in the actual principles of capital punishment, bearing on capital punishment right now, but uh, this is just to give a quick description. So we run between whatever these intuitions and our principles are on a given topic and try to, you know, further refine them and balance them out. It's a balancing act, you know, hence equilibrium um, after reflecting on them thinking about them uh, not only is uh, you know reflective equilibrium multi-stage but it's potentially infinite there's no limit between how often you can work between substantive particulars and principles and theories you know you can try to balance out for quite a long time between intuitions and particulars and principles and theories and try to get the best coherence you can can you can cohere until your uh, heart's content and as new information and expertise is considered put 
Another way, reflective equilibrium is where we try to get a harmony between our beliefs and, and principles and our particulars or intuitions. Yeah, so we want to get our intellectual house in order and then we can know what we truly believe to be moral and just. That is what reflective equilibrium is. That's what it hopes to attain. In a way, yeah, this seems uh, very boring, right? Uh, it's not so different uh, than, uh, or it's exactly the same as what any person, philosopher, philosopher or otherwise, might do in working out how they feel about a particular topic. I think most of us largely seek coherence between our values, principles, and how we feel about particular cases. When our belief system falls out of balance, we consider it a kind of psychological malady. We call it cognitive dissonance. Generally, cognitive dissonance is said to occur when someone holds contradictory beliefs, ideas, or values, and is defined as being typically experienced as psychological stress which we can do so unknowingly or from discovering that you hold contradictory beliefs. You know, when these beliefs come to the surface. I also wonder if the stress from cognitive dissonance bubbles up from our subconscious, even when we're not aware if there's, a, there's an incoherence between our beliefs. I'm not sure. It's kind of interesting. Um, is the, is the um, subconscious even a thing anymore? I, I don't know. You never hear about it. I guess in the age of social media where public pronouncements and displays are the norm, the subconsciousness, the space of subconsciousness has shrank. Or, you know, it never exists in the first place. Who knows if Freud... Yeah, I was on to something. Anyway, sorry, got to focus. And this cognitive dissonance thing, it causes quite pronounced feelings of anxiety, or at least it should. For me, personally, it produces anxiety like an on-scratch itch when I discover some incoherence in my beliefs, when I know I'd probably just be happier to ignore it. And it's quite uncomfortable. And then I'm motivated to seek to get my intellectual house in order. More often than not, though, that great underappreciated hero that is undiagnosed ADHD comes to the rescue and causes me to get distracted by something else. Ah, sweet, sweet, pacifying distraction. First, I'm going to describe how reflective equilibrium does seem pretty boring, and I'm going to show that actually it's quite a clever philosophical tool when formalized. I think there's a lot of moments uh, in philosophy like this. The one that comes to mind for me is Tarski's definition of truth as snow is white if and only if snow is white. Seems simple, but when you really look at it, it answers a lot of highly complex questions like the liar's paradox and is less simple than it seems when it's fully unpacked. So much more, I think, for reflective equilibrium. So to state it a bit more formally, reflective equilibrium is a state of balance or coherence among a set of beliefs arrived at by a process of deliberative Mutual adjustment among general principles and particular judgments. Now, to be clear, it's not a coherence theory of truth. 
Not necessarily. Coherence is what we seek in reflective equilibrium, but it's not a comment, nor does it rely on a grander coherence theory of truth. One could theoretically use reflective equilibrium to sharpen a correspondence theory of truth. Here, coherence is just a matter of tidying up our house so that we can move forward. Intellectual housekeeping. Reflective equilibrium was first introduced by Nelson Goodman, the mid-20th century American pragmatist, when he was trying to create a definition of inference in inductive logic. According to Goodman, we should justify rules of inference by bringing them into reflective equilibrium or balance with what we usually say are acceptable inferences in a broad range of cases. So we take these uh, broad range of cases and what we how we usually how inference usually operates in them, and, you know, that's how we should create our rule. So, take a rule, hold it against standard cases, and then maybe some more difficult cases, and then see if the rules are capable of being formulated consistently across this range. Any inconsistencies might cause change in either direction. You know, we might change the rule. Or if we feel the rule is too valuable to toss, then we might reevaluate our judgments in the inconsistent particular cases. Now, this is all nice, workmanlike, and it's, it's a little sloppy, but that's the way the pragmatists like it. Contrast this with a more traditional conception of the development of rules of inference in philosophy, which might seek to discover a timeless, tightly, conceptually analyzed rule of inference that then reigns over particular instances of it, a very top-down approach, yeah? Rather than being timeless, Goodman's path for the development of the rules of inference leaves those rules permanently and constantly open to revision, perhaps changing as common social practice of inference makes changes. Now, Nelson Goodman is quite, he's quite well known in his own right and is an important American pragmatist. But the idea of reflective equilibrium that you know and love really got wings when it was borrowed by John Rawls. John Rawls is a uh, giant. He resurrected political philosophy in the 20th century as it had been a dead discipline for a really long, long time. Really, if you study political philosophy based primarily in the analytic world, there's this huge gap between John Stuart Mill's On Liberty and John Rawls's Theory of Justice. That's 1859 to 1971. It might even be a stretch to call On Liberty. Strictly uh, putting, it's maybe a stretch to put it in the analytic tradition, although it does revel in the odd conceptual distinction. Uh, there might be some works in between On Liberty and A Theory of Justice between uh, these hundred years, but, uh, uh, you know, as I type this, I'm in my underwear and I'm too lazy to Google it, so, and there's nothing that comes to mind, so let's just say there wasn't too much going on in those hundred years. People just didn't believe that uh, the hardened conceptual analysis and tight argumentation of analytic philosophy lent itself to normative philosophy, especially social normative philosophy ranging over groups that is political philosophy. Morality has a bit more legs in analytic philosophy. I'm thinking G.E. Moore and uh, Stevenson. The genius of Rawls was bringing back political philosophy and doing it within the type of parameters of analytic philosophy by employing social contract situations, theories of rational actions, and prisoner dilemma type situations to make a very beautiful, sparse, and uh, tightly wound theory. 
I mean, the theory of justice is 560 pages, but the skeleton of the theory itself is, I, I believe, quite sparse. People have always slammed his writing style, but I quite uh, like it. Rawls. He employs this uh, reflective equilibrium to develop his ideas of principles of justice. Uh, He starts with some intuitions and uh, feelings that we have about justice and instances of uh, justice in action, and then asks us to consider principles of justice that a diverse group of people could hold in common if they were situated in fair initial conditions. This is the original position, which is a really well-crafted construal of uh, social contract situations um, that uh, I don't really want to get into now because I'd really like to tackle John Rawls in another podcast in the original position, political from the ground up. So these principles agreed to in a fair initial situations using reflective equilibrium are fairly general in our modern pluralistic and multicultural societies because, hey, you know, and uh, we disagree on a lot of different things, especially when things start to get specific. So, we go back and forth between the three levels of principles and intuitions and theoretical considerations until we get for Rawls two principles of justice that all other substantive issues must abide by when we work our way down from the creation of a constitution right down to the laws that you know Congress or Parliament drafts. of equilibrium and even the frameworks with uh, the most optimal levels of coherence could you know be subject to revision and new test cases and scenarios when uh, scenarios bring forth new intuitions about uh, what is acceptable and unacceptable you know society is constantly changing there's always new events maybe the long dormant debate about torture that arose post 9-11 could be an example of a changing environment bringing about new test cases and possible changes in feelings and principles regarding torture. On the other side of things, police shootings of African Americans might bring reconsiderations of a scaling back of the role of uh, law enforcement, the right of the state to use violence. Or environmental destruction and global warming might lead us to consider whether the environment itself is a rights-bearing entity legally recognized. You never know. Some of this stuff can be done with piecemeal legislation, like environmental legislation, but some, you know, especially seeing the earth as being a rights-bearing thing, entity in itself, that might need a more ambitious remake at the level of governing principles. Okay, so let's stop there. Next time we will talk a little bit more about the historical changes that led to our developments of reaching procedural rules for solving disagreements and coming to conclusions in our liberal democratic society. After all, you know, reflective equilibrium is a tool. As I said at the beginning, it's one such procedural method. How did these things develop? And I'll look more closely at a distinction that uh, people draw between narrow and wide uh, reflective equilibrium. We will look at the work of Rawls, but also draw a bit from Kai Nielsen, Canadian philosopher Kai Nielsen, and, you know, maybe a few others. All right. Thank you for listening. On the very idea, a philosophy podcast.